Welcome to In the Arena, a show where entrepreneurs and leaders take us behind the headlines and into the biggest crises of their careers and lives and how they made it to the other side. I'm Jesse Janae, a startup founder and your host, frequently joined by guest hosts who have also built companies and seen some things themselves. On this season of In the Arena, we ask our guests to relive their most challenging professional and personal moments in painstaking detail, from major deals collapsing to public scandals and even being sent to prison. More importantly, we hear how they came back from the brink as they share their biggest lessons, mental frameworks, and earned wisdom with us. So, let's go into the arena. Today, Eric and I are excited to be joined by Austin Allred. Austin is the CEO and founder of BloomTech, an education platform famous for pioneering income sharing agreements instead of just charging tuition. His company has forever altered thousands of students' lives for the better. But having a huge positive impact doesn't make actually running and growing a company easy. How the company was actually doing is almost inversely proportionate to the amount of hype that we were receiving. Not quite 100%, but like, it's honestly really awkward when everyone externally is telling you that everything is going great. And then you're trying, like, you're like, you have no freaking idea, mm-hmm. you know? Today, he goes in depth on his own personal experience running Bloom Tech, as well as the cultural transformation he realized the hard way was necessary. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to, good to see you both. It's been a minute. <laughs> I yeah, know. Ex- it's really excited to have you. So we want you to share with us, there have been so many moments that have been really intense while you're growing your company. Uh, and hopefully we get to cover several of them. But I really just want to ask you, for you personally, what is a moment where you feel like things have gotten really existential? So it's not an external factor necessarily. It's that you feel like, holy moly, like, I don't know if we're going to get through this, or I don't know if I'm going to get through this because XYZ is so intense. Like if you could find that for us. And then when you find that painful moment, I will just probe and probe and probe. (laughs) So, (laughs) so you just take us there if you can. Yeah, it's perfect. The, the, the funny thing is, when you're first getting started, everything felt like an existential moment. Looking back, the times that felt like existential moments actually weren't existential moments at all. Um, and the times that, you know, it's not quite the inverse, but like the times that were actually the most pivotal, I think of one particular instance, like I, I can remember what it felt like, like walking around Lake Austin with one of our investors, or sorry, it's like Travis in Austin, right? You know, the company had a ton of money. We were, you know, press was mostly good things. All of our numbers were, I mean, nothing was like broken, broken, but I felt worse then than I felt at times when we had, you know, one fiftieth that amount of money in the bank. Interesting. Yeah. So you're walking around, I guess like, try to set a scene for us. You're walking around the lake. It sounds like you're with an investor. And if you're doing okay at that moment, like, you know, there's some cash in the bank and stuff. 
what is hitting, what is feeling so existential and what are you personally feeling in that moment? Like, like maybe I can't go on anymore or I don't know, you know, just what is it actually like that day? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I remember it was hot as hell. Um, and the, the particular investor I was with, I don't know if he just like, doesn't like, you know, he, he, he loves to go on walks all the time. Does it perspire? <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, you know, I was in like jeans and it was, it was, it was north of a hundred, which doesn't bother. I, I just remember being like, oh yeah, surely we're not going to like be out here for very long. And like four miles later, we're still, you know, having a, a, a heart to heart. But the thing that felt off was we weren't headed in the right direction. It wasn't that. And that that's honestly when I think things are the most difficult is when you don't want to be the bearer of bad news to everybody around you. You're trying to, you know, keep everybody encouraged and it's difficult because there's no forcing function to make difficult changes. You know, in more recent times, we've had moments that on paper look far more existential, but it's been so obvious what we need to do because you do what you have to do. Whereas that time, and that was part of what was broken, was the culture felt more comfortable than we should have. And yeah, as a, as a founder and CEO, you're always like a little bit more, you always have a little bit more information than anybody else. And, you know, there's stuff that you like, you just take in and it bounces off and it like doesn't affect anybody underneath you or around you. And it, you know, it just, you, you let it all die with you. But the times that are the most difficult are when you have to force. So that, I think that was what was the most difficult. Um, it was right around when we decided to do a second round of layoffs, which sucked. What year is this? 2020, 2021. Um, the world is calm. Everything else in the world is going great. So it's just you guys really having these issues. <laughs> well, no, the funny thing is like, I feel like we're just the inverse of everything all the time. Cause in 2020, after, you know, COVID hit the fan is when, you know, we raised our biggest round. We had, you know, more money in the bank. Things were going really well. And then we sat around in a board meeting and said, you know what? We need to shift everything and get the cash flow positivity because up until then, yeah, it was always just everything was up and to the right and you just go more and more and more bigger, 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 but realized that like, you know, the money train was going to, you know, slow down eventually. And we just like, we turned down a nine figure adult, nine figure term sheet. And I, that, that was hard and a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm so glad that we did. Um, we would have just, we would have been one of those very dramatic blowups where you run headfirst into a brick wall because you can't raise the next funding round and you have to lay off 800 people. Like that's the path that we were headed on. And so you're like, okay, do I, you know, keep fixing the plane as we're flying it? Or do I make, you know, do I pull up right now and make the difficult decision? And you look like an asshole in the short run, but in the long run, it's the right thing to do. So so there's kind of like a facing this fact that you're going to need to do this second layoff. And I've done not one, but two layoffs as well. So I can uh, commiserate a little bit. The, the Same. 
<laughs> well, they, they always tell you, right? In the, in the first first laugh, it's like, hey, make sure to cut so deep cut that you'll one, never have to deep. do this again. And yeah. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. our first layoff, we were like, you know, a couple, we, we ended up cutting like, I think it was like 10%. Like it was small, yeah. but it felt so big. And not, not that any layoff is small, right? There are people, but like, I remember thinking like, we are, we have cut to the bone. There is no more like, totally. I was so dumb. I was so dumb. <laughs> um, and so, so when it's hitting you that you're going to have to do the second one, like walk us through some of the very real considerations and emotions about like how you're going to have to communicate that, what that means for things that you've told people that you're delivering or, I don't know, you know, there's, there's the realizing it, but then there's the consequences of it. And I, I'm guessing that's kind of what's hitting you as you walk around that lake as well. Yeah. Underlying all of that was a culture that, you know, I had created at the end of the day that was, I was really proud about the culture because we cared about students more than anything else in the world. That's all that we cared about was how can we help our students be as successful as they possibly can be. But what was missing was uh, systems thinking, um, a way of like people would heroically stay up all night helping you know an individual student instead of building a system that would make it so that that student and students after them don't need to seek that kind Didn't of help. Didn't need that support, yeah. And when you raise as much money as we did, as quickly as we did, people are just detached from the from the financials and the reality. And like m most of the meetings I had were like, hey, you know, we should just reduce the targets to make them easier to hit so that, you know, we make sure that we're being successful. And then me feeling conflicted because, you know, I want everybody to feel successful too. Let's figure out, you know, what's realistic and what we can actually achieve. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, running the math as fast as I could and being like, but that does not get us to where we need to be. But, you know, there's a bit of a principal agent problem where the individuals in that room were spending somebody else's money and like that, you know, there's enough runway that you don't have to deal with that for a long time. And there's not even enough visibility into that to, to say anything. So you have to be the bad guy. And I was not very good in the early days of being the bad guy. How do you reset culture like that? That's a hard reset. Do you need new people? Like not 100%, but do you need different people like, you know, in leadership positions and stuff to reset a culture like that? Yeah, probably. Maybe somebody else who's better leader than I am could do that without. No, I wasn't asking if you should be replaced. <laughs> no, 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 I was, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying like there, there may be somebody who can figure out how to do that without like switching around who's in the company. But I mean, the big thing that I've learned over time is like, you know, if you look at all the levers you have as a founder or a CEO, you know, you've got maybe fundraising is over here, maybe brand building is over here, like recruiting and, you know, hiring slash firing is a hundred times more potent than anything else you have. And there are times when there are people that, you know, you shift the attitude or you shift the skill set or whatever. But the, the bluntest instrument is definitely effective, and that's changes in personnel. And I don't want to like get too into detail so that people can try to reverse engineer stuff that isn't mine to share. But at leadership levels, not everybody sees eye to eye in all things, right? And like, in, in fact, if anything, it's perhaps the most important and most difficult there because, you know, as, as you both know, when you, when you grow a company, especially quickly, 
you hire one person and then before you know it, that person has hired three people and each of those people have hired five people. And you're like, whoa, that was, yeah, I thought I was hiring one person. I was accidentally hiring 50. And if you want to shift that level, it's very painful, right? It's very, very, I think we've changed the culture very dramatically at Bloom Tech. Um, and we, you know, we had to change our name in, <laughs> in tandem with that, which is also frustrating. But at the end of the day, the most difficult changes were the changes where we didn't really have to make the changes right there, but it felt wrong. I feel like that's a highlight of true leadership moments where effectively there is no external forcing function forcing you to act, but there is just this sense. And I think that this sense of ambiguity, like what should come next and, oh crap, it's actually on me and a small circle of people to decide is a feeling of extreme intensity. Do you, did you have any thought partners maybe aside from investors and stuff at that time? Or did it really feel like almost something you had to keep bottled up? I think that was the perhaps the most difficult part is that I felt like I kind of didn't. And I think I started viewing things as wartime when other people thought that it was peacetime. And, you know, to use the Ben Horowitz analogy or whoever came up with that analogy. And there are people who are really excellent at peacetime that are just not interested in wartime. And I 1000% get that, right? Like, there are people who have phenomenal careers by figuring out what company has, you know, found that thing and they just want to ride that thing and make it great. And, you know, risk adjusted, that's probably the best way to make a lot of money in Silicon Valley is, you know, find that, you know, late series A, early series B quality and just ride it as it ramps. Yeah, I, I don't want to say I didn't have anybody around the table that was thinking that way, but it was a shift, mm -hmm. both in attitudes and people. I mean, to, to give you an idea, there was a time when people were like, wait, we shouldn't talk about like revenue at the company because we don't measure our success in revenue. We measure our success in like grads placed, grads hired, you know, lives change. Like that's the real metric. We weren't even having the conversation, right? I mean, we, in small circles, we would talk about you know, hey, where's revenue, where's costs? But like, it was so fluffy. Perhaps that's an extreme example. And I don't want it to sound like we never talked about revenue. Um, but there- No, but I, yeah. I understand. It's like sometimes things can, a culture of what is, you know, what is acceptable or not acceptable, a certain company can run away with itself. I, I think about weaponized values quite a bit. And um, sometimes that can be extreme. I don't know if I'll give a short example from, from me, but we talked a lot about transparency, um, but then transparency could be weaponized. Someone would do something completely like expose some detail completely unacceptably to a customer and be like, you told me we believe in transparency. And I was like, whoa, bro. <laughs> like, so, so it's like a, that or everything sure can be turned. Inaccurate information with a reporter, not realizing that it's inaccurate. And then you deal with lawsuits because of it so for maybe years. so maybe like that's that like kind of? yeah maybe maybe like that you yeah. know and and i think uh, but i want to i want to go back to something you said about the name change like there's just been so many intense things you've had to deal with like maybe that uh i don't know if you feel like that's a, a relevant one the law lawsuit stuff also seems super relevant but you already mentioned uh, having to change your name so i thought maybe we could pause on that for a sec yeah and there are parts of that that i can't talk about as a result of uh, okay. trademark <laughs> lawsuit and settlement 
but they happened in tandem. So what I can say is this was a, a trademark lawsuit that had been, you know, going on for a while. And we spent a lot of money. I love the brand that we built. I mean, we had like, there are probably a half dozen Lambda school tattoos still out there for people who are like, holy smokes, you changed my life. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm getting it tattooed on my body. I, I talked to the people with tat that I knew had tattoos individually. And they're like, look, things changed. And that was a temporary time in my life. And I will still always be grateful for Lambda School. You can name it whatever you want. Like, that's the brand that I love. Don't have to change that in the trademark settlement. But it was, that was part of the shift from peacetime to wartime is we're spending a lot of money defending that. Like, it, it's insanely expensive. Insanely, insanely expensive. And I, getting to brass tacks and reality was as much as we love this brand that we've built and as much as we think we're in the right, we can't afford to keep spending this on. It's not on mission. It's not helping you get that result of the students. Although I do want to just say, wow, to the fact that a founder experience you have is calling people with a tattoo to tell them that, <laughs> that, that your company's going to be name changed. I mean, honestly, you just blew past that. Like, oh, like we've all done that. Like, like no, I've man. got stories, you guys. <laughs> Um, he's, he's like, it's on my ass. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. Like was one of these people, your mom, like, I don't know. I have so many questions that are probably not yeah. a good use of time right that was now. Students. The, wow. the one that I talked to was a, yeah, she was, she was awesome. And she, you know, she had a lot of tattoos. That was like her saying was, yeah. you know, every, every major turning point in my life, I get a tattoo oh. like that was, that's really uh, sweet. so there, there are a handful of that kind of thing, but yeah, I think that was actually the most difficult. There've been times when you know, fighting for survival and fighting for cash flow positivity actually felt easier to me than when you're, you know, we would have been able to spend money for another two years the way we were, and we would have run straight into a mountain. Making that change when no one around you wanted to make it was, was pretty difficult. E Elon made layoffs cool, but it was a bit too late for us. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. And then, you know, you, to put things in perspective, you look at something like that and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I didn't have to lay off 5,000 people overnight. <laughs> like, when all, With all the laws, I mean, just even the logistics of that seems completely... I mean, I'm pretty wild. sure they just said, we can't even wrap <laughs> our minds around most of this stuff, so we're just going to do layoffs. And like Twitter is being run like a five-person startup right now. It's just got billions of dollars in revenue and thousands of people, which it's... You know, I can't imagine anything messier and like the level of mistakes that they are making publicly and reverting very quickly is fascinating to watch really is. because, you know, and this is another example that I talk about. So we used to do like a weekly email to the company um, and it was just, you know, hey, from Austin, here's how things are going. Here's what I'm thinking about. And before I knew it, I was spending all of my Friday with three or four other, you know, high level people writing this email and it would go through revisions. And like, by the time it would go out on Monday, I was like, I am spending a fifth of my time writing this email. And yeah, you can justify that by saying, yeah, it's a cultural thing. People always refer to it and like, um, but you know, now I can't even fathom spending a full day writing an email. You know, granted, we're smaller now. Granted, we're more agile now. But like, that's just kind of representative of 
we were so careful about things that we didn't actually need to be careful about that my instinct, you know, I'm very, very comfortable in an extremely chaotic, extremely risky seed stage environment. And my mental model was, okay, I have to learn how to grow up and, you know, play nice in a big company. And, you know, my words matter so much more now. And everybody is, ling- you know, not even, not even just, I'm sure you've both experienced this, not even lingering on things that you said, but like finding little like phraseologies that you just said offhand and like running down a rabbit hole of what that was meant to be. Working like, no, on no, something no, for like all. a week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that at all. And, you know, so you try to eliminate all of that. And before you know it, you're just in this like box of not doing anything meaningful, not saying anything meaningful. Cause you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to do the wrong thing. You spend all day planning projects on how you're going to plan the next project. And I'm sharing some extremes, but I thought that that's what it meant to be a bigger company. I was miserable. I freaking hated it. It's like against all of my instinct and I don't find it fun or enjoyable at all. But I thought that's what you have to do in order to make your company be successful. And so that's what we did. Riffing on this, can you give an example of a moment where something happens where you're like, whoa, I thought I have pro- had problems, but this is a problem. Like, like, a bit, like a clarifying moment where a new, I don't know if it is a lawsuit or something where, where you have one of those wake up calls where you're like, whoa, previously I was being like, whoa, my gosh, running a company so hard. I thought I have all these problems. And then there's something that happens where you're like, now that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know if that happened to you, but I, I'm, I'm curious if there's a moment like that. So not, not quite in that, like that level of instantaneousness has that happened. Um, but certainly if, you know, if I look back at one of the, what I thought was one of the first existential crises. So the backstory here is education providers are, uh, very ambiguously regulated in the sense that every state has its own set of regulations and they are all built toward schools that have people in the building. And so, you know, California was the state that we were in. And so technically, if you charge tuition and you are, you know, if I teach somebody in Ohio, I have to abide by all of the laws and regulations in Ohio. And nobody does, 90% of schools just don't do anything and it doesn't matter. Um, But we wanted to be very careful. So we we went out and we said, hey, we're in California. California has a bureau called the Bureau of Private Post-Secondary Education. We want to make sure that we're in compliance with all of the laws. Um, we had our you know, startup lawyer kind of read through some of the regs and they don't make sense. There's gray area all over the place. What do you think we should do? The lawyer basically sat us down and said, this part is so clearly meant to be for like people with butt in seat that, you know, yeah, you guys have a headquarters in California, but your instructors aren't in California, your students aren't in California. So just don't worry about it, basically. Um, and then, you know, once we started getting really big, really fast, a couple days after we had an article about us in the New York times, um, we got a, you know, basically a fine from the state of California, the Bureau of private post-secondary education 
said, hey, you need to register. Um, and registering is not, there are parts of it that are difficult. Like you're supposed to provide three years of financial history or more. And we didn't even have. Yeah, you can't even do that. Yeah, yeah you can't teach a student until you have registered and you can't <laughs> register until you have three years of financial history. Yeah, it's just an example, right? And I think that particular example is in California. But there's stuff like that where the law literally isn't possible to follow all over it's the like place. A circular. Um, yeah. And so you just do the best that you can. And you know, now to give you an idea, we have an entire team who just goes around and keeps up with all the different state registrations when we enroll a student over here. So you know, we're a remote school, but we have an office somewhere in San Francisco where you have to have copies of you know these records for all of the students in a locked file cabinet it has to Stop specifically it. be a locked Stop file it. cabinet so we have some flash drive in some file cabinet somewhere because that you know checks the box of it being files of all of the students uh, that's updated every however often anyway you know within 24 hours we turn around and we you know submit our initial registration to the BPPE in California and, you know, there are a couple articles about how, you know, we're trying to like flaunt the law and like, you know, oh, the Uber strategy of just, you know, giving thumb, you know, flipping the bird to the regulators. I was like, that's not at all. I was trying to be so, that was like, the frustration. No I was trying to be so yeah. careful and like, so by the book and I was doing everything that I could. And I, you know, in retrospect, I got bad advice from counsel, it's, but like, I thought that was like the scariest thing in the world. If I heard about that now, it wouldn't like, I, I don't like want to like, <laughs> well, I, no, it's not. I have the benefit of hindsight. Right. But the, the good news of most regulatory stuff is generally speaking, if you're trying to work with them, they're trying to be reasonable to the extent they can within the law. I wouldn't say state they are districts in the country where that's not true. But it wasn't existential. There, there are so many times, and I don't know that I thought it was existential, but I like, I would, that would keep me up at night. What I'm saying is stuff that used to keep me up at night, I wouldn't even think about now. Well, you just wouldn't be sleeping because there's so much, so many things accrue over yeah, time that you if you even stayed up at night, you. you would just be up at night all the nights <laughs> and then you would just slowly perish. <laughs> Yeah. And that, that's one of the, that's one of the interesting things that I think people don't fully recognize is like, you know, let's say there's a VP of the company or something. They have an issue that is the most important thing to them and is completely valid and they need to deal with. And you have to learn to context switch incredibly quickly and be present in the moment for that specific thing because it's not, it's not fair for you to bring other, you know, like issues into that, you know, that other issue. And to them, like that is the thing, like that's the most mm -hmm. important thing. Um, and then, you know, then similarly, you know, when I go inside and I am hanging out with my family and, you know, my my four-year-old couldn't care less about why <laughs> she doesn't care about the BPPE. <laughs> no, not at all. Weird. Yeah, and I thought she cared about you. <laughs> yeah. See, I guess what I'm saying is you have to learn to compartmentalize really well and context switch extremely well. And my wife will say sometimes it feels like I like forgot how to feel emotion along the way. No. And 
that's in jest, but it, it's like <laughs> you learn to just take so you learn to be so stoic about things, right? Like yep. there are crazy ups and crazy downs and you learn to manage your psychology and you're just going to be even killed through all of it. And the stuff that felt existential yesterday is going to feel fine tomorrow. And the stuff that felt like you're the genius and you figured it all out today, you know that tomorrow you're looking at the data wrong or something. And yeah, it's not... The highs are not as high as you thought and the lows are not as low as you thought. No. It's dram- yeah. And they're dramatic, right? They're crazy, crazy. Like people throwing tens of millions of dollars at you in one minute. It's just like the... I guess the, the wavelength of the waves is is really extreme. You, you know the saying, everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about? Yeah. For, for, for fa- it's like uh, every founder is fighting a lawsuit you know nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's so dark and, and so and they, true. And they can't talk about. <laughs> and they can't yes. and they can talk about. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's like I, like, I feel like from behind the scenes, that's 100% true. I'm curious about something that has happened where you feel like you had to do the most management with your team or communications, but you yourself felt like it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, again, kind of speaking to that gap between reality of what's existential for the company and like how much time you have to spend managing something. I don't know if anything comes to mind, but that's another gap I think quite a bit about. Some things can come into your world and take so much time, but they're not always existential. Yeah, I think I think now I've honestly gotten better at not doing that. I mean, there are, there are times when I would spend a, a lot of time doing stuff that I didn't think was important. And you know, in retrospect, I look at that and I consider that a weakness that I was... What, one of my weaknesses is that I don't like making people feel uncomfortable. I'm a little bit of a people pleaser. Not because I need to or anything, but I just like you know everybody feeling pleasant in the moment. And so I guess... The thing I have to force myself to do is feel uncomfortable and make something painful in the moment that I know will make things easier later on. Now, I, I think I'm pretty close to the point where, like, if I don't think that something is important, I'll just say that and I will pivot and shift. And to be clear, there are people that that has rubbed the wrong way, like, a lot. But I, I think. I've had to learn to be abrasive so that I don't endure stuff like that. There, there's still, I will say the the thing that I forced myself to pay attention to that is still like comp leveling adjustment where like on an individual basis, like, you know, as a whole, the company, none of this is going to like dramatically move the needle, but it's just like, I need to spend an individual piece of time with that person's comp and benefits and make sure that they're feeling good about things and, you know, that's one of those in aggregate, it definitely matters. It, it's so hard when you don't have the context of, okay, we're moving that person from 120,000 a year to 127,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's all like, yeah, doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything, but to them it does. Of course. Yeah. Um, it's very asymmetric in that way, but. Yeah, exactly. Go- going back to what we were talking about earlier about managing the, our psychology, Austin, in, in one of our group chats, uh, maybe one of the great entrepreneurs of our time said something along the lines of, I don't believe in mindfulness meditation. <laughs> what do you unpack? Yeah, I don't understand who that was, but that was fascinating. Yeah, um, he's a friend of yours. When you unpack kind of what you learned from from him or, or just that, that concept or like, because that seems like a contrarian take among uh, you know entrepreneurs today, perhaps. 
you know, I, I see this a lot being, being on the receiving end of recent college graduates a lot <laughs> as a, a school like ours. You know, I don't have any perfect solutions here, but I do feel like there's something fundamentally broken in the way that, you know, I'm not going to prognosticate problems of the United States of America or the world or anything like that. Um, but I can say what we see locally is some people who are trained to think that any pain or suffering is the result of evil um, or wrongdoing. And that it is that feeling bad is inherently to be avoided. Um, and you, you know, if you go down the kind of rabbit hole of the you know psychological psychiatric basis, the, the Freudian theory behind that um, becomes like, oh, there are all these issues that you need to root out, and once you root out all the issues, um, you will not experience pain or sadness or what, you know, whatever mm -hmm. that may be. Mm -hmm. And I think I've come kind of on the other side of that to where pain is normal. Suffering is part of life. And even, you know, beyond that, the big thing that I have become skeptical of, I've seen a number of CEOs who go on this like life journey, who am I and what makes me happy kind of thing. And it's very rare in my experience that someone who says, what makes me truly happy and feel fulfilled? And like the answer to that is not being a startup CEO, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, in the long run, perhaps, but in the short run, like there are parts of it that really suck. Painful. Um, yeah. And, and look, we, you know, obviously we're, none of us are in a, priv in a like position to complain about how difficult our lives are relative to 99% of humanity and really most people who work in tech should not be complaining about a damn thing relative to most of the world ever. But I, I think it can be damning to seek self-discovery and think about one's own happiness at the expense of everything else. Humans are happiest when they have something bigger than themselves to strive towards. And the most miserable people that I have ever met are the people who retired early from tech riches right. to go surfing and like experience just like be in nature or, you know, like it, it you need something to strive toward. You need a challenge. You need a project. Um, yeah. You got kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I my co-founder had a phrase I'm curious that resonates with you, which is, uh, pain is information. And I'm not sure the provenance of that. He may have gotten it from somewhere else, but effectively, like every time you're feeling pain, you're actually receiving information about what is like, yeah. like there's a causal nature usually like, and if it's I physical like pain, there's like, it's like something's hurting you and being burned by the stove or whatever. But if it's mental pain or, you know, startup angst, it, there's usually a causal relationship. And so basically that completely transformed my thinking. Like basically I would like to think of myself as someone who prefers to receive a lot of information. Therefore, a lot of pain actually mm. makes sense. Uh, so that was a reframe for me. I, I'm curious if that resonates with you. No, that's super interesting. I've never thought of it that way. I, I will say I've noticed like there are times when like there's that, and I'm, I'm sure you've all experienced this, like 
there's just something that like feels off or something that's nagging at you, but you just kind of suppress it because you've got to get through the day or it's not the convenient thing to address right now or whatever that reason may be. Every single time that I've been like, this is, this feels off to me, but I don't want to rock the boat or like, you know, this person's in a tenuous spot and I don't want them to leave or whatever. Like it, mm-hmm. every single freaking time comes back to bite mm-hmm. in like mm-hmm. in a very material way. Um, and the inverse is also true. Like I actually tweeted about this a few days ago. Like there are times when I am like looking at something and I, I don't, this is going to sound like hippie as hell. Wait, I don't know. But, we're ready. Like, we're ready. I'm going to meditate through this. <laughs> Yeah, clo- everybody close your eyes and imagine uh, a king. Um No, there, there are times when like I see something that is like good, for lack of a better way to describe it, and there's like an actual physical response. Mm. Like I, I don't even know how to describe it, but like it's not just like an emotional or an intellectual like, oh, this feels good, but like there's like something that is like, core not even just your gut but like something that's just core to who you are that says like this is it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i think about that you know in investing sometimes that but like listening to that both on the fear side and the good side has been a better indicator of what will be successful and not than any amount of data that i've ever seen and i think Part of what I learned over the years is to really, really pay attention to that. You know, you know there's the one of my favorite blog posts is um, by, I think it's Ben Horowitz, which talks about like run into the darkness. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about managing your own psychology. There are ways that you can like see something that's off and be like, okay, hey, that's not my problem right now. I, you know, and I do say at times like, that's a problem for future Austin. You do have to like delay problem. But if there's something that's like nagging at you and you're just unwilling to address, usually that means that there's something that's fundamentally broken that you're unwilling to fix. And oftentimes I find that that's the actual existential thing Mm -hmm. and you're running away from it because the existential thing is scary when you actually should be diving in and fixing it. And you know, it's going to suck. Mm-hmm. When you lift up that rock, whatever you find underneath it is not going to be pretty and it's not going to be a fun time in there. <laughs> but now I feel like I can run day to day, find the things that are what's giving me the ick yeah. for, as the Gen Z people would say, <laughs> go find that thing and start fixing it. And then, you know, where do you just feel really, really good and, you know, do more of that? I become a believer, I suppose, in like, not quite intuition. There's not really a word that we have to describe it. And trusting but like, your gut or like a that kind of phraseology, whether whatever that means, yeah. I think is a good guiding force. I want to quiz you on something. I follow you on Twitter. I'm just going to open with that. And from my perspective, you do a great job of running an entity and all the complexity that comes with that and also still having opinions online and basically like engaging online. I know many founders who really struggle with that, is that possible? Like, can you engage online? I've so many thoughts on that. I thought about this. From the outside looking in, I feel like you do a good job. Before you answer general thoughts, I'm curious if there's any stories about when that actually has blown up on you that I don't know. Like, has it caused problems for you that I don't know? Because I can't really see into those. But then I'm curious about your opinions generally. The answer to the first part is all the time. (laughs) 
And I think that's one of the like counterintuitive things that like I've learned about it over time is, you know, there, there are founders who are both active in the conversation and very proper. Like I think of like a Patrick Carlson who like, he's never stepped on a grenade and will probably never step on a comms grenade because he's just so well spoken. And like, every time I see something that Stripe PR puts out, I'm like, gosh, dang it. Like they did so good. I would have, I would have screwed that up so bad, but I've also, the times that we've had the worst experience that I've had the worst experience with that are like Twitter for me started out and I am pretty open about this. It started out by being like a bad habit. Um, then we got into YC and then I was like, Hey, when we're in YC, I'm not tweeting. I am going to stay focused. Um, and then like halfway through YC, there's something that I wanted a couple people to like try out. So I tweeted it and it, you know, we had hundreds of people like on demand looking at the stuff with me, giving me feedback. And I was like, okay, shoot, that's kind of powerful. You know, I think at the time I, I remember how many followers I had, it was probably like 20,000, which is a, both a lot and both not nearly, you know, not what it is today. And then I was like, okay, this is actually a tool that, you know, is, is somewhat useful. But then as we got really big, really fast, like, you know, we had a, an external PR team, we had an internal comms team that it was like, Hey, everything needs to run through, you know, these filters and like, you know, be so, so freaking careful. And I think the result of that was that people lost trust in what I was, I, I felt like people were slowly losing trust in what I was saying and that it felt like we were filtering stuff through a PR filter because we were. were. Yeah. And obviously there are things online that I'm not going to touch. It's just yeah, not worth, not worth you it. know, that, but, but when I feel, I, I feel like the authenticity of me actually expressing my views a lets people understand what like sometimes i think about it as like inoculation like there are people who are very vocal all the time yeah you know, I, I think like delian from founders fund right like he's very abrasive um and because he's been abrasive and as said dumb stuff in the past, like you give him more leash to be abrasive and say dumb stuff in the future because you're like, that's what, that's Delian, right? I'm sure the people at Founders Fund absolutely love his <laughs> tweeting style. And, you know, Elon is another example, right? Like I'm sure he, he would admit that he puts his foot in his mouth all the time, but you kind of build up an immunity to that in some extent to where like, if that's what people expect and they get that, that's not surprising where things go awry is when people are getting something other than what they expect. And I think just the way that I feel the most comfortable in relating with stuff is like, I fully acknowledge I could be wrong. I could have a bad take on something. Um, I could incidentally offend people, but if I try to bottle everything up and make sure that I never, ever do that, then you know, I, I combine that with like all of the, the company must be big and you must do things this way. There's good that a lot of good that comes of the ability to be frank and the ability to share what you actually think um, that I don't know you can buy that any other way. Mm -hmm. It's not an accident. Um, sometimes I'll, you know, like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said it that way, but I made the conscious decision that I'm going to say what I think think 
in a as well spoken of a way as I can. And part part of that is, you know, I want to work with the people that I want to work with. And if they're uncomfortable enough with me sharing what I think are very banal thoughts, um, like, should I sh- say this? Yeah, I'm going to. Um, there were there were people within Bloomtech who were very frustrated that we were working with Amazon because mm. they viewed Amazon mm. as a union busting company. Mm. Got it. Um, and they came to me saying, hey, this feels like, you know, something that I wouldn't support. Do you think this is good? Um, and I had to be like, yeah, I do think this is good. I think it's going to, it, we, you know, I've seen people change their lives because of it. I think, is Amazon a good place to work? I think by all measures, you would say yes. Mm-hmm. And like, you don't have to agree with that, right? And that's okay. And I'm not going to fire you because you're at Bloom Tech if you don't agree with that. You know, if you're trying to like blow that up or something, that's that's a whole other thing. But I know that in my executive team, we do not agree politically. Mm-hmm. We do not agree on many things and we're there for the right reasons. And But like, I know that because I know that the people on our team don't have to hide what they think mm-hmm. about something. Mm-hmm. And that is key. Like when you start having to filter everything that you say based on who the audience is and keep track, like it's just, it's a losing battle. The effort. Yeah. yeah. The effort is, yeah. I hear you saying that there's like a selection filter that can be positive because people are actually getting to know you and then that attracts. Yeah. Look, if, if you don't want to work with me because I believe that capitalism is a force for good in the world, you're not going to like lurk working for me anyways. Totally. So we may as well know that up front. Yeah. Here, here's my kind of narrative about the company as an outsider, but but you're also your friend. Lambda was this Silicon Valley darling. And just like every Silicon Valley darling, you know, they get a, and on deck was a version of this too, you get a, a target on your back. Mm-hmm. And so like many startups that are that are doing a, a, amazing, they have fall from grace, they suffer from, you know, they might have to pivot, they suffer from layoffs. We, we've all been there. There might be some lawsuits, there might be some bad press. Uh, you know, you, you've dealt with the, the gamut and now you're quietly, or you're crushing it. And it's relatively quiet. And, and and one thing we've reflected on privately is this idea of like, what is it like to adjust from this idea of being a Silicon Valley darling, which sometimes kind of happens out of nowhere and it doesn't happen to everybody. And it's it's amazing while it's happening to that changing. Yeah. And and now you're you're you bounce back, you're on the other side, and you're you're taking a much more sober approach. I'm, I'm curious if you could just kind of ref, reflect on on how you adjust from that transition. Yeah, there are a few ways that I can answer it because it is, I mean, yeah, when you guys were at Product Hunt, that was like all anybody was talking about. Exactly. I couldn't walk down the street in San Francisco without people trying to get a picture level stuff, right? I'm sure you guys, if not, I mean, we were like this weird, you know, we weren't like a Silicon Valley facing Silicon Valley company. You guys were like, you know, (laughs) the epicenter of the valley. I'm talking to one of our executives, uh, a couple of hours ago and we were just reflecting on the fact and he's you know been at the company for like four years now so he's a veteran how the company was actually doing is almost inversely proportionate to the amount of hype that we were receiving not quite 100 percent, but like it's honestly really awkward when everyone externally is telling you that everything is going great and then you're trying, like, you're like, you have no freaking idea, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, you know, and part of that, like, that's how it is at every company. 
but now I'll say that, you know, I'm not like as an individual off of Silicon Valley's radar. I think, I think being on the Silicon Valley radar is unhealthy to a certain extent, right? Like it, it brought us talent that we wouldn't have that we still have today. It brought us money that, you know, all of our competitors are dead. Um, so those are nice. But turning from that into a real company, I think is a bigger gap than people, most people realize. You know, to give you some context, we went over the course of just over two years from burning $11.8 million a quarter to cash flow positivity. Wow. Um, that is what? not, that is a big shift. That's not just a big shift. That is monumental. And, and also just a massive accomplishment because the, now the stuff you're saying about culture change just like really hit me, like it hit me in the heart <laughs> because basically like to get hit, hit, because to get the people involved in your org to go from that mindset to the other mindset, like to get them over that hump, uh, be, I mean, the execution is obviously everything, but that culture shift is massive too. It's night and day and it has to be right. Um, and there are people who are still like who made that shift. Um, there are people who couldn't and some that were just not interested, right? Like it's not fun. Um, it's, it's cuts. It's It's just like literally hard work. And I'm like, I am so, so grateful for having to have done that because now I feel like I know what it's like to run a tight ship. I know what it's like to have a truly high expectations bar and to act mm-hmm. according to that. Like reality forced us to do things that would have been really difficult to do when reality wasn't forcing us to do those things. Right. Mm-hmm. I honestly feel bad. It's going to sound very, very strange, but I feel bad for the companies that have never had to experience something like that. Because I don't think you can truly get a company to the level of like strength per unit that we have without being forced to do it in some way. And so, you know, it was a massive shift. And to be clear, we're still not out of the woods. Like there's still to be where I think the company ought to be, you know, we need to grow another hundred thousand X from here. Um, we're still just barely scratching the surface, but I would take that over being a Silicon Valley darling a hundred times over, Mm -hmm. a hundred times over. And there was a time when everything I would say was an article. There was a time where every step that I made was like, people were just paying attention to everything. And like, you try to not let that affect the way you operate, but like you and some of the people that I look up to are the, the founders who are able to do what they think is correct, even though they know they're going to get slammed by all the people who have no context. And you know they may be wrong sometimes, to be clear. Uh, but that's just a really difficult... Like I was not at that time in a place where I was mentally able to say, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. One of the big things I learned over time through sheer trial and error is to, you know, when to trust myself, when to bet on my interpretation of things, even knowing that that may be wrong um, over the crowdsource version of things. And you have to do things that are counterintuitive 
to everybody around you, even the people that you respect the most in order to make a company successful. You know, we're talking about like the difficult times that the reason it was so difficult is because I had not done that very well. And I had to full 180 shift to no, we're doing what I think because and everybody would say like, you know, you're the CEO, you're the founder, we defer to you, whatever you say goes. And then you'd be like, okay, let's do this. Like, well, like, whoa, whoa. With, with the we exception of the thing that you just said, uh, you know, you're, you're really just not considering this factor and this factor and this factor. It sounds weird and authoritarian, but like you have to get to a point where this is what we're going to do and you have to get on board and you can disagree and commit, but this is it. That's the hardest when it's layoffs. That's by yeah. far the hardest. The personal journey to get to a place of, I don't even want to call it comfort because I think I don't, I don't really personally know someone who's just like, oh yeah, I'm completely comfortable with it now. But to get to a personal journey of just being ready to just do that over and over and over and over again, because that's what makes your company successful is just massive, you know, just massive personal travel all the way to there. Yeah. I mean, there's sometimes I'm like, like, am I, am I learning the wrong lessons from this? And am I just like living in a swimming in a soup of self-deception where I'm telling myself, <laughs> like I'm blaming everybody else for all of the problems and saying that my intuition is perfect. But I know that that's not right either. It's just like the times when I felt really uneasy about something and then we went and did the thing that I felt really uneasy about. And I like, I was like, I don't think this is right. And I'm not like, those were the times that we ended up making massive, massive mistakes. Well, what I hear you saying is not that you think you're always right. It's that you think that someone, and in this case, this is your literal job, needs to decide hard things routinely. That's and exactly. that you're not always right. It, you didn't say that. You never said that. You said someone, because when you're describing these other feelings and then these, it's a vacuum of leadership. It's a vacuum of someone making that hard choice. That's what I hear. I don't, if you, you yeah. know, I can always be misinterpreting, but that's what I hear because that is the hardest thing is just to realize that you look around and you're like, wait, someone's job is to make these hard choices. And you're like, oh shit. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. You're just like, wait, guys, guys. <laughs> but it's literally you. So I, I don't know. To me, I'm inspired Chief hard, hard choices officer that I can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm inspired by hearing you just fully come full circle and realizing that there's no one else in the room certain times because that's your actual job, you know? And I think uh, it's just, it's just cool to hear you talk about that, frankly. Um, and it resonates with things that I know about myself and others. Well, and I do want to say that like there are times it felt extremely lonely. Right. And there are times when there were people who I have no right to have working on my side that continue working on my side. And like, I'll never, ever forget those folks who step up and support and back you at those times to be able to experience that. Like there are people that I will go to the grave defending. Yeah. And oh, you just realize that that's what a lot of life is made up of is you know, a handful of people that you learn to really love and trust. That's the thing that I'm so incredibly grateful for now is, you know, there are people that I would, that I used to work with that we don't work with anymore that I would rehire in a second. But, you know, right now I look around the company at some of the people that I get to work with every day. And it's, you know, it's an honor to work with them, 
but I don't think I could have possibly found that group of people and been aligned with them in that way in only good times. You know, we're talking about the, the transition from Silicon Valley darling to where like our company is doing a hundred times better than it did when we were the Silicon Valley darlings and nobody cares. And that's awesome. It's like the best thing ever. Oh, no. I mean, you're like, oh. Because your customers care and your team cares. Like the people yeah, you know what makes me feel better? Care. Looking at the actual results and looking at the data. And then I don't care what Twitter says. Like Twitter can, totally. you know, and over, over time you get to know people who are, you know, I know people who make billions of dollars a year personally and are like, you know, way more successful than any, you know, the hottest startup you can imagine is and have scaled. And they're completely below the radar. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think being, being that the business I'm running is a school, that will probably not be an option. Like, I have to be mm -hmm. in front of regulators and students. Um, but I, I envy that a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I've learned to completely dissociate the popularity or the hype with the success of a business. And I used to think that they were at a minimum correlated and I don't anymore. I know you don't. Yeah. They may be correlated up to a certain threshold at which they become inversely correlated. Actually. Um, like Google was never trying to show how well Google was doing. Google was trying to hide how well Google was doing so that Microsoft copy it. hundred percent. We're really inspired by your journey. I mean, even if we weren't personal friends, uh, I mean, you've been building it in, in public and seeing you go through so much and of course do such like mission uh, driven work and the, the highs, the lows, and then the highs again, and seeing you guys crush it, I, I think it's just one of the more inspiring stories in, in tech and for other CEOs. And so we're grateful for you for, uh, for sharing it with us today in Indy the Arena. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for chatting. It was good to, you know, need to catch up sometime. It's been, been a minute. So <laughs> yeah. Both yeah. Thanks for opening up and letting us like kind of badger you too. We appreciate your candor. Yeah, for sure. This is fun. Other founders will appreciate the war stories. Yeah. This is, this is better than the therapy that I don't believe in. So. <laughs> 100%. Thanks for listening to In the Arena. If you enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, and share by leaving us a review and telling everyone you know. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at inthearena underscore pod. We'd love your suggestions on who else has an intense experience to share. 